0: Should you productize your services? Does a productized service business completely differ from the standard agency model? Can both models coexist within the same business? These are all questions we answer in today's conversation with Sam Schepler, CEO of Testimonial Hero. Transitioning from a full-service video production agency to a productized service business today, Sam shares the three specific benefits of productizing your services and the potential pitfalls to look out for along the way. Sam's team has definitely had some successes to learn from. They hit number 342 on the Inc. 500 list in 2022 and have successfully scaled beyond $3 million in annual revenue. As he shares the lessons from their journey, we touch on the trinity of the benefits in productizing your services, how to avoid competition from AI and low-cost service providers, even with a highly repeatable service offering, and toward the end of the conversation, some very specific financial do's and don'ts to keep in mind if you're headed down this path as an agency owner yourself. To start, let's go back to 2018, when Sam was thinking about the first iteration
1: of the agency. In 2018, I had been working on actually a mobile app. It wasn't taking off. So I had to basically pay some bills. And I had previously run a full-service video agency in the past. And one of the most popular products or you know services that we had done for our clients you know, and I ran this agency with some co-founders from about 2012 to 2016, you know, full service video production. And, but yeah, one of the most popular things we did was video testimonials. And by the end of that agency, we had really began to really specialize in video testimonials. Basically, uh, I just thought to myself, I was like, all right, like knowing everything I know now, like what could I build if I even focused even more tightly on video testimonials from the start, because it was a problem that I was very passionate about. And also it was something that I recognize you can put a process behind. It's very hard to put a repeatable, scalable process behind, you know, something like a commercial shoot with actors. It's kind of antithetical to the end result. You know, when you you want to create everything from scratch and create every script differently, right? But there is somewhat of a, you know, framework. You know, maybe not a recipe, but definitely a framework for a video testimonials. So, based on my past ex- agency experience, that really attracted me. And also, I thought that there was just a, a way to do it a lot better. I was kind of like frustrated by like the options that I saw, and I was like, "This, there needs to be a better way."
0: I love starting with the problem. A few weeks back, listeners were just filling my DMs and our guest DMs about this episode with Nick Bennett with Harness and Hone. And he has this line that I'll never forget now. Once I've seen it, I can't unsee it. He's like, most agencies try to market the solution and then convince their clients that they're the best option. Instead, you need to market the problem and then you become the default solution. And we're not talking about even marketing your firm yet, but we're talking about the same starting point. What is the problem that you can solve that, as you said, you can narrow in on, right? So often we talk about going narrow or niching down in the agency space, and it's just about industry or channel or maybe both, right? But it's not so much about what is the problem that you solve. So I love that you guys started there and it echoes something that Nick was sharing on the show a few weeks back. Sam, I want to ask you this because I think some people would maybe struggle to define what is a productized service business? Is it really different from an agency? Is it one or the other? How do you go about defining a productized service business as you guys would define it for yourself today? What are the similarities versus the differences from you know a quote unquote traditional agency?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. And I think most people would define a productized service as a agency that's very niche and you know the pricing is fixed. Maybe there's a pricing page and you can see exactly what you get, kind of taking some of the aspects from software and and SaaS, applying them to agencies, and maybe, you know, instead of pop in on a sales call. You can purchase just from the website and kind of self-serve. And almost certainly you, you're you not going to be doing proposals. That honestly, I think, was what product as services were, you know, maybe in when I started Testimonial Hero. Now, I think, you know, the at least my definition has gotten way broader and it's more of just a mindset that I want to think about how I can productize this, make it more scalable. Like we, we use proposals, absolutely. Like we don't let people, you know, just purchase off the site. They want to speak with us because of the, the level of investment that they're making. So, you know, back, I think, back in productized era 1.0, I think it was a lot about, you know, we're going to take some of the things from B2B SaaS and like apply it to an agency, pricing page, ability to self-serve, you know, no proposals. Now I think it's more just about having a productized mindset and, you know, whether you productize externally on your marketing site or kind of internally, to me, those are both, you know, productized services. We are definitely more of a, we productized internally. So like our customers don't necessarily, you know, get to experience, you know, directly or see everything that we're productizing. They're just, they're experiencing the benefits of, you know, a very repeatable, high-quality product. They're experiencing, you know, an easy sales process. But yeah, it's not, I don't think product as services have to be, you know, what they used to be, which was this self-service, you know, website-type experience anymore. Yeah.
0: So what I hear you saying there, Sam, is you can still take some of those things from SaaS, from a product-led growth approach, and apply those, even if you're not doing it completely externally, you can do it internally and you can maybe have a mix of some consulting with some productized services we've had Bob Rufflow from Impact on the show talking about how their business model has really evolved to include more coaching, consulting, training, some cohort-based training as well, very different from where they started as an agency. So I think that that's that's really interesting. Whether Sam an agency owner is listening to this and they're thinking about should we make the shift to totally be a productized service firm or Or they're thinking about, how could I, as you said it, productize internally one of our existing service offerings? What do you think are some of the main benefits of quote-unquote productizing in a service-based business?
1: First, I'll say, you know, you can have some parts of your agency that are productized and some some that aren't, right? It's not an either-or thing. It can definitely be a yes-and thing. And in addition, you know, during the life cycle of your agency, you may very well need to adjust your level of productization depending on your strategy. For example, when we first started, you know, we were like super productized. Like, You get like a 90-second testimonial, a 30-second testimonial, and a 15-second video testimonial, right? And I was like, and that was fine because also in 2018, like, you know, people weren't thinking about video testimonials in such a strategic and experimental novel way that, you know, many really great marketers are today, so point being is like, you know, we've probably become less productized as we've grown in some respects. And I think that's, that's okay. And I think people can sometimes shoot themselves in the foot or just at least from a growth perspective by staying too productized for too long as, as they move up market. Different maybe strategic conversation, but to get to your initial question, like the benefits of, of productizing, I think it's a couple of things. Like first, it's this ability to be able to go out And actually create demand because you have a, a very specific like let's use testimonial for hero for example you know we are helping b2b marketing teams easily create some of the world's best customer testimonial videos so it's a very specific product it's a very specific you know outcome you know it's not like a if we're a full service video agency our marketing might feel and sound like hey like we can help you with video marketing. We can help you with video production. What do you need help with? Let's have a chat and see You know if we can solve any problems for you, right? Versus us being able to come with a laser-focused value proposition and actually focus in on that problem and actually create more demand because of the specificity. And that's a huge benefit on the sales and marketing side around the productization because just focusing on a specific problem and making it easier to market. Secondly, making it easier to actually buy and sell. That has always been a big part of productized services, even from the beginning. I think that productized 1.0 was very much this kind of like, we're not doing any proposals like ever, like proposals are terrible, like the anti-proposal, like a lot of scar tissue there. I know all agency owners have, and like, there's a lot to be said for that, but we do proposals, but they're highly processized. They're highly templatized and kind of modular and, and have all these components. So it's not You know, our team can whip up a proposal in five minutes and and PandaDoc because we have all of our processes in there. But so, yeah, just selling it like I've been fully out of the sales requirement. Like I've been fully out of the sales role since maybe like late 2020, maybe a little before.
0: Yeah. So only like two years in, you got out of founder-led sales, which is correct. I can just tell you from the agency owners I talk to is definitely the minority when it comes to that transition. Even for the folk, there's some that don't want to make that transition, but most do, and most either never do or they take a lot longer than two years, man. Right?
1: Yes, exactly. And and I think if productizing makes your service way easier to sell, and I wouldn't have been able to get out of sales in that short time frame, if we weren't productized, right? So that's the, the second thing. The third thing is, is easier to fulfill, easier to deliver. When you specialize, you know, and you have this product that you're repeatedly doing, you are able to optimize, you're able to get really good. You're able to get really efficient and just making it easier to deliver. So really, you know, the three things, easier to market, easier to sell and easier to deliver that those would be like the Trinity. I think of, the goals of productizing.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I would agree with all three of those easier to market because I love what you said there. You can avoid the, what do you need help with? right? Because no one has time for that these days. No one has time for the, Sam, what are your business initiatives for 2024 coming up? Can we get 15 minutes to pick your brain? Because I'm sure I can help somewhere, but I'm not sure yet without doing this discovery. It helps you avoid all of that. And we might get here further in the conversation, but I, I imagine potentially... As you have mentioned that you guys haven't gone completely productized now at Testimonial Hero, it can be kind of that tip of the spear because you can market that specific problem, that specific solution, even though you're building processes and you're building capabilities to do other things, you don't necessarily lead with that. But now it gets you away from that. What can we help with question that otherwise you'd have to
1: lead with? Is that fair to say? hundred percent. And I think even with the capabilities that we're building, they're still related to that core problem you know, our audience needing customer testimonials, needing, you know, customer evidence. They're just really digging deeper on that same, you know, problem set. For example, creating top-of-the-funnel micro content and like short form clips with testimonials or creating, you know, LinkedIn video ads featuring customers. So we're very much still focused on the same problem that we've always been focused on of how do we help B2B revenue teams build the trust they need to close deals faster. We're just going deeper and deeper and deeper into it every single year. And some of those solutions are more, you know, customized, you know, went with some of our bigger accounts, but we still have that, you know, basic productized jumping off point for the people who are just like, look, I I just want the basic thing.
0: Yeah, really good, man. So I think we've got those three, as you said, the trinity of productized service. And I think the fourth benefit that we touched on here is it does allow you to systematically add on additional services on top of that. So you got three plus a bonus. Now let's talk about the other side of the coin, Sam, because I've seen some of this from my own experience within an agency where I would relate it very much to what you said, not completely productized self-serve, but I literally described our proposals in that way. It's funny, we built them in Pandadoc as well. And I would say, look, our services aren't totally bespoke, but they're not one size fits all either. And I use that word that you mentioned earlier, modular. I'm like, we can build something custom, but it's based off of these five or six different building blocks. So let's figure out which ones you need, and then we can build the Lego tower that makes sense for you. Maybe that's a bad analogy, but at least that's what I did. So let's talk about some of the challenges, though. You mentioned earlier, or at least alluded to it, that going too productized can keep you from growing as you want. To move up market, what do you mean by that? What are some of the challenges to look out for if you're saying, Hey, I want to go more productized internally or externally, but I do want to grow and I do have aspirations to move up market?
1: Yeah, for sure. Well, first of all, you know, some productized gurus or whatever you want to call them can be very dogmatic about, oh, like if you require a sales call to sell your productized service, then it's not a productized service. I mean everyone is entitled to their own opinion. That being said, you know, my opinion would be if you don't require a sales call to sell your product or service, you're not charging enough and you know, you're going to get probably wiped out by AI in a couple of years, right? So, I personally am a big, you know, fan of always initially first going upmarket and you know, sure there are going to be some trade-offs that you have to make to do that you know, you, you might have to do sales. You might have to do a proposal. Like we've mentioned that people aren't just going to like click buy checkout cart type of thing. But to me, when you consider like the bigger picture, all those things are worth doing because ultimately like what's the end goal. That's how I think of it is like, okay, I, I want the business to, you know, get to a certain point, you know, be able to operate at a certain scale, provide a certain lifestyle for me. Like and you know, part of that is going to be increasing the average order value so we can actually do good marketing. It's really hard to do good marketing if you have a small LTV. You're you're kind of hemmed in on the channels that you can make work, right? So I am passionate about the fact that just because you know you're productized doesn't mean you can't be premium. I think it's possible to have the the best of both worlds, premium, significant, lifetime value, significant average order value, and then be appropriately productized, you know, and that might be 70% productized. Like, I actually think that at least today in the landscape we're in in 2023, and, and I do actually see this continuing, is like, if you're 100% productized, your service probably isn't that remarkable. You know, it's like you kind of to find the, have to find the sweet spot And I guess that that's going to depend. But yeah, that's kind of how I look at it. It's like, it's a spectrum of where you want to be at any given time. And that's kind of a strategic decision. And you don't want to just look at that in a vacuum and productize as much as possible without, you know, thinking about that.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. One of the other challenges, and it kind of dovetails off of what you just said there, Sam, when you are trying to avoid the, what can we help with problem versus, hey, we have something to specifically offer. If you're looked at as too productized, it's like, well, you just solve for this. And as you mentioned, you can face competition from technology, especially with the rise of AI tools right now, or just lower end offerings, right? Oh, I could do this with a freelancer on Fiverr or Upwork because I'm looking at the bullet points of your quote unquote product and the product looks very similar, right? Mm -hmm. And I don't have that same view of you as an expert, a consultant. So how do you think about balancing these two of maintaining that expert consultant status with your clients while doing something that is more repeatable and scalable? And I guess that could be You know, how you guys do it at Testimonial Hero as you have a blend of this now, or maybe others that you see doing that well. How do you deliver repeatedly, but maintain that expert status, that advisor consultant status with your client where they're willing to pay a premium?
1: Yeah. The way that I think of it initially first is like, you have to do remarkably good work. Obviously that's common sense, but also I think it's important to acknowledge because a lot of times in the agency space, you know, people are often asking, like, how do I do this? Or like, how do I grow my business when like the work is that they're doing is maybe just average, right? So like, you know, first things first is like becoming incredibly good at at the craft and that can take care of a lot of a lot of the problems. For us specifically, we have always had some bit of value innovation in our company. And I'll explain what I mean by that. So, in basically, it comes down to like, you know, being different, but also figuring out entirely new, different ways to create things. And for us, it's like creating video testimonials. So, when we first started the company, we had a big value innovation around no travel fees anywhere in the world for video testimonials. So, that's especially in 2018, that's something that's like objectively was an innovation, like, you know, no one really had that, you know, and a lot of people still don't. And to do that, we had to build a global network of videographers, train them in our, you know, standard operating procedures and do a ton of a ton of work to actually be able to say, like, look, yeah, like, here's something different that you get with us that is going to be valuable to you. And then in 2020, when we launched our remote video testimonial offering, which really, you know, we did only because of COVID we were only doing in-person video testimonials and then COVID happened and we, you know, business effectively would have had to, you know, would ground a a halt. So we're, we're like, all right, how can we create the world's best, you know, purely remote video testimonial. And we did a whole value innovation process on how to do that at a way, way, way higher quality than just like a zoom call. Right. And that's basically why, you know, customers, Came to us, you know, one, you know, at least that's what got our attention. They're like, wow, this is like a remote testimonial that looks like it's filmed in person. So we actually had to develop some IP there and get some owned, some like lived experience insights. So I think that's getting back to your question. The more I think you can actually develop some, you know, leverage your, your background or develop some unique insights, you know, do some actual innovation to, Create that differentiation, the better. I mean, because it's so being better at something is in the eyes of a client is so subjective and it's always way easier and way more beneficial to, you know, be able to say, Hey, like totally understand that we're actually a little bit different. Here's how we do it, things differently. And here's why it might matter to you. So yeah, in general, like I'm a huge fan of, of innovating in, you know, whatever way that that means for your business. And focusing on differentiation, I think there's that saying like an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Like I have a saying that's like an ounce of differentiation is worth a pound of ad spend.
0: That's fantastic. I love that. (laughs) I love that so much, man. Uh, It's really good. I think one of the things that you hit on there, Sam, as I was just kind of mulling this over where we started with productized services 1.0, as you mentioned, looked very much like SaaS, looked very much like, you know, product-led growth, click here to buy, self-serve on the website, those sorts of things. And as you've talked about, you guys specifically have moved a little bit away from that. But I would say what you're saying here with the value innovation does borrow a lot from product development in the SaaS world, right? I think the danger here, and correct me if I'm wrong from what I'm hearing you say, is you build a product and you have a process and you have a system for cranking that out and it's valuable. But if you just let that sit there and you never create a new version, you never ship new features, you never, you know, take feature requests from your customers and try to build that into the next version. That would be like a SaaS company building it. And then version one is all you ever get. They don't have any annual or quarterly updates. They don't have a product roadmap. It would be the equivalent of that. And obviously that product would die on the vine. Is that a fair analogy to draw from that? Sam?
1: absolutely i think you know you constantly need to be you know reinventing yourself well maybe not constantly but like at minimum every 2 to 3 years mm-hmm. as an agency as a you know service provider the landscape is always changing the technology out there is changing faster than ever so yeah i think if you know it's just not an option to to stand still and yeah absolutely always super critical to just be thinking about reinventing yourself. Also, I'll say I think productize, like the productize 1.0, looked a lot to like the SaaS tools that maybe they would use. Like, so like those founders would use like, you know, small SaaS tools that you can self serve. Personally, I like to look to the larger, you know, B2B SaaS companies who, you know, have more enterprise tools, right? Cause like I've learned so much from you know, kind of applying, you know, as best as I can tell, some of the ideas and best practices from, you know, successful B2B SaaS companies that have like a, you know, more established go-to-market with SDRs and AEs and you know all of those things, right? You know, more of an enterprise go-to-market and applying them to our company testimonial here. So I am a huge proponent of learning from the the B2B SaaS world, I think, you know, because of the way how B2B SaaS companies are capitalized, like you can, you know, typically get, you know, some of the absolute best people and best talent in the world, you know, are drawn there. And, you know, because of, you know, venture capital and, and all those things. Um, so yeah, I'm a huge proponent of learning from them. I think we have to, as agency owners, if you want to move a market, you know, we should learn from the ones who are, moving up market, you know, not as much the ones that are selling the 999 a month self-service tool though.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point. Hey there, It's Logan with Teamwork.com. I wanted to take a quick timeout from this conversation to ask you just a few questions. Are you an agency leader looking at the year ahead with concerns about AI, inflation, employee turnover, and client retention all at the same time? Are you curious how your peers are managing similar concerns and thinking about the path forward? If so, I've got some good news for you. Teamwork.com recently partnered with Audience Audit to gather responses from over 500 agencies around the globe into a comprehensive research report, the State of Agency Operations 2023 edition. And to make it easy for you as a regular listener of Agency Life, we've linked to it right in the description of this episode. So if you want insights from fellow agency leaders about how they're managing profitability, employee utilization rates, the use of new AI tools, and over-servicing clients, check that link in the description of this episode and access the 2023 State of Agency Operations Report today. All right, let's get back to the rest of the conversation with today's guest. What have been some of those that you have looked at, Sam, and maybe some of the things that you guys have implemented by looking at some of those tactics of the SaaS companies that are not completely product-led, but they're a little bit higher ACV, a little bit higher purchase, and a little bit more of a considered purchase?
1: You know, one that's very... Well, one is just like doing marketing in general, right? I, I think like a lot of agencies, obviously... Marketing is an afterthought and there's a lot of legitimate reasons for that, right? They're just, they're kind of stuck in a sell do, you know, cycle, you sell a customer and then you fulfill the work and then you sell, a co- and like, there's no there's hardly any time for that, but you know, we've been fortunate to, you know, we have a really good team, which I think is also worth mentioning is like probably the the reason, we, you know, any semblance of success that, you know, that we've had as a company is mainly due to the quality of team we've been able to attract and retain. And so that, you know, I'm having to talk more about that, but I think that's super important to to mention. So what have we been doing that we learned from, you know, these industry leading SaaS companies? I mean, just like some of the marketing best practices, having, you know, having a go-to-market strategy, you know, making sure we're doing all the, the typical things, like you know, we have, we invest in SEO, we invest in Google ads. We have, you know, we run LinkedIn ads, like, you know, we're doing outbound, like all the basics, you know, are covered. So, you know, we have like the marketing programs in place and you know, we're investing, we spend a lot of money, you know, on, on marketing. So I think that's, that's one thing. Is like, you have to have the margins and to spend on marketing to begin with. Right. So like realizing that, it, you know, it's an investment and being willing to spend tens of thousands of dollars a month on marketing and, that's important like i think some agency owners maybe they're they're just not not willing to you know take take some big swings on the marketing side cuz marketing is hard and a lot of times you know you can't track it fully and sometimes it doesn't work out so and then secondly i think this is obviously very in vogue and i know it's come up on a couple other episodes you know thinking about kind of our strategic narrative or our kind of point of view i think has been very you know important and something that we are doing a lot more of. And a lot of our point of view really comes down to this idea that, you know, we now live in a world where, you know, buyers are a lot more skeptical than ever. And some of the most impactful ways to, to help that and address sales friction is customer stories and customer video content. However, you know, most of a lot of companies are still using a very outdated, you know, playbook for that. So like the world has changed But, you know, a lot of companies are not changing the way that they do customer storytelling. They're still in this kind of case studies at the bottom of the final mindset, where what we see is the best companies are injecting, you know, the voice of the customer throughout the entire buyer journey and increasingly with video, because you don't get most of communication is actually through tone of voice and body language. You That's like 93% of communication, and you just don't get that through text, so That's kind of what we're trying to talk a lot about, this idea of, you know, full funnel customer storytelling and obviously a video first uh, approach we think is the way to go.
0: Yeah, even the way that you guys have framed the solution there, full funnel customer storytelling, right? It just rolls off your tongue. But yet I've never heard anyone quite describe the framework or the process that way. And that's so powerful as an agency, whether you're super productized, you're very bespoke or, or whatever. I think that there's power in starting with the problem and then creating the framework to address that problem and then giving it a name, talking about those points of view, noticing those shifts in the in the market to borrow from Andy Raskin a bit. So, and I will just say, as we kind of go off on this tangent a little bit, what you guys are doing, I think is super timely, Sam, because we were just talking in our marketing team at teamwork.com last week about the fact that, hey, we kind of have done only full-blown customer stories and it has to be a full write-up and all these sorts of things. And I propose like, hey, we're recording calls with our CSMs and our, our partner team and our sales team. Oftentimes we have even, you know, a recording of that snippet, a transcript. How could we just say, hey, could we use that that quote real quick and use that as a springboard to maybe something a little bit more like kind of what you guys do with remote recording to maybe then we also do something more full production of a full customer story if it warrants it, that sort of stuff. But it's not all or nothing. And we're not only getting kind of the bottom of the funnel coverage. So anyway, that was just super applicable for me, having that conversation last week here internally. So really good stuff. One thing I want to actually a couple of things I want to ask you, Sam, you shared a previous tweet thread before you and I recorded this episode. And I thought it was really interesting. And I would love to kind of pepper you with a few questions from that thread, because I think it was really insightful before we get to our final two segments here on Agency Life. You cool with that? Yeah, let's do it. All right, man. Well, one of your pieces of advice, so you're basically kind of the title to this thread was seven things I've learned running a $3 million productized agency. And one of the points you made was lifetime value and average order value or AOV, as you talked about earlier, are more important than MRR, especially in the early days. Why did you call that out? And why do you think that that's important for someone going down this path?
1: Yes. And it's a great question. And if anyone wants to read it, you know, I'm sure we can link to the post mm-hmm. pinned on my Twitter as of, as of recording. So you could probably find it pretty easily. Yeah. So I think first and foremost, the whole way that a lot of agency or product as service owners think about MRR is kind of BS. And basically because the churn on marketing services is so high that really like people sign a customer They say they sign a customer for like three thousand dollars a month for the product and service, and on average, the customer like you know stays for like five months. You know that's not really like. And then they churn like that's just putting them. That's like a project payment plan. (laughs) Like you're that's basically like you're keeping them from a quarter, uh, and they're on like a payment plan. You know, and if you can't really keep a customer on a monthly billing plan like more than a year, like. Billing them monthly is not really gonna help you. Basically it's like it would be better to just collect all that money up front and like call a spade a spade and be like, look, like, all right, we're gonna do this project and you know, it's gonna cost instead of like five billions of three thousand dollars, like bill it for like two payments of seventy five hundred and then hit them up, you know, every eight months to do another one. But instead, people try to force, you know, their service into this recurring box because they haven't they think mmr mrr is the solution to all their problems and they end up like shoving a square peg in a round hole and ultimately like their customer leaves and never comes back because when you turn someone off an mrr model it's like very unlikely that they ever come back but if you sell someone a project you know there's a lot of ways to like actually get them to come back you know even annually or a couple times a year you can do like Like, it's just way more flexible. So basically, I don't think like early on, like, unless you have like a truly the MRR service that, you know, and there are, there are some out there, like you're like managing ad spend and, you know, people are going to be sticking with you for a long time. Maybe that's fair. But I think, you know, in general, most people are kind of deluding themselves when it comes to, or a lot of people are kind of deluding themselves when it comes to MRR. And they're really just like giving the customer a payment plan and they, you know, would be better off at least in, in the beginning, like charging them more on like an upfront, you know, project based thing and creating repeat revenue on an annual basis or quarterly basis or biannual basis, not, you know, this kind of fake MRR with the churn like off the charts type of situation.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting because it's it better to have those annual projects with one customer that do repeat, and it goes to your point, so you really unpack that well, that you actually do drive up lifetime value that way. So let's call a spade a spade, uh, especially if you sell a lot of venture-backed if you sell to a lot of venture back SaaS companies, there is no reason that you as a bootstrapped agency should be their bank and giving them a payment plan just for the sake of increasing your MRR and making that, you know, feel good internally. So let's go a little bit further here on the financials. You had two other points on the financial aspects of running a productized agency, Sam gross margin is the most important line on your P&L. What makes you say this and where do you see a lot of agency owners getting it wrong where they're not seeing gross margin as the most important line on the P&L? Well, I think
1: initially they might not even know, they might not even have any good understanding of what their gross margin is. And, you know, that I think is super important to address. And to be fair, I mean, it's hard to calculate, you know, gross margins. It's complicated, but you know, net margins, super easy. It just, it happens on its own, but you know, gross margin, you really have to calculate and make sure you have things tagged correctly as your cogs. And you're considering your people costs too. Like, you know, particularly the product of service, if you're not tracking, you know, hours and you need to like on a, every single project, you still need to, you know, get have a good feel for how, how many person hours are in that, typical, you know, project, or if you don't have a team, you have to calculate your own hours. So like I see a lot of times people like, oh yeah, my gross margins are great, but then they're forgetting as the founder all the time they're putting in to the service. So it's like, you know, yeah, your gross margins are great because you're putting in four hours every project or even more, right? But let's get a market rate on, you know, maybe it's going to take someone else, you know, you take, you can do it as a founder in four hours. It's going to take someone else 10 hours to do it. And their market rate is going to be, you know, let's say 30 bucks, 40 bucks an hour. So we have to factor that in. Right. You know, so first things first, like just having a good feel for gross margin is, is critical. And the reason it's it's so important, you know, there's a couple of reasons. Like the first reason is it's if you don't have a, a strong gross margin. So like at least, you know, 50% gross margin in general, it's just very hard to make any meaningful net profit unless you decide to like not invest in marketing right it's like a pie right if you if you don't have 50% of the pie left over and you have less than that and then like and you want to make net margin there's just not a lot to do you know to invest in marketing and and to do all these all these things Say you want to hit like 20% net margin right that means you have 30% for all the rest of your opex including marketing right and that, that's not even that much like to so like that's why 50% i think is like the minimum and then, other than that, I mean, it's very easy to move things around to be profitable on a net basis, or or not. Like in sometimes, like you may not need to be net profitable. Like you could be reinvesting heavily in marketing for growth and building enterprise value. But you can play around. You have a lot of flexibility to hit net margin targets. There's a lot of levers you can pull, but you really don't have flexibility on your gross margin targets. Like it's either like you hit it or you don't, and it has major cascading ramifications from that point you know i kind of hate like the overused like businesses warfare metaphors but like if you think about profitability as like a war that you're fighting per se the front lines of that battle are gross margins and you can't if you lose the front lines like it's very hard to make it up so that's why it's so important
0: Yeah, I think it's worth going there, even though maybe we go to that well too often that it drives home the point and where you've started there, Sam, a lot of agency owners don't know those gross margin numbers. If you're an agency owner and you're listening to this and you know your head is even spinning thinking about gross margin versus net margin, if you're a listener of this show, you might not know we also do a monthly live stream for Agency Life. If you go to teamwork.com slash agency life, look for one of the past webinars with Drew McClellan from Agency Management. Institute. He did a master class. You'll want to pull out pen and paper calculator, maybe a Google sheet uh, to show you some of the, the common mistakes that agencies make when trying to calculate gross margin versus net margin and how that impacts your growth goals. So a quick aside there, but a follow-up resource. We'll link to that in the show notes, as well as this tweet thread we've been talking through with Sam for you. But before we get done, I want to ask you one more question on this thread, Sam, and then get to our final two segments. Your recommendation to to agency owners thinking about a productized model, or at least in part, is to start thinking about cash versus accrual basis for their accounting and start doing accrual basis ASAP. What's driving some of your recommendation here for your fellow agency owners?
1: Yeah. So this ties into the kind of MRR question, because one of the things I recommended in the MRR question was, you know, instead of billing someone 3K a month for, you know, over five months and then they leave, or let's just say five months is fine. So do like the 15K, you know, maybe do 15, 7.5 K when you start on day one and 7.5K on day 30. And we're gonna work with you for five months over that, that project. Well, you're right. So like changing from that monthly billing to more of like the you know project-based billing and collecting up front. So pulling that revenue forward is incredibly important for cash flow, which Obviously, is very very important. However, there's a side of that that you have to understand, and that I didn't initially know around accrual, which is all about revenue recognition and like what's earned revenue versus what's not. You know, accrual and cash look very similar. If you're if you are able to bill monthly, and you know and you know because your work gets done in that month, you recognize the revenue in that month. But if you collect, say, like 15k upfront, you actually and you're doing a project for five months really, you you would be earning after 30 days on an accrual basis, 30 days in, you would have earned 3K of that. And then it basically 30 days in, you earn another 3K. So like, that's the thing to be understand with accruals is you're not earning all that money immediately, you know, because you still have work to be serviced. So like, basically, you just want to be aware of that because there's a cost also to fulfill, you know, that that project over time. So, basically like having the cash flow is, you know, really really good and it allows you to reinvest in growth and and all these things, but you also want to be aware that like technically on a accrual basis, like you you haven't really earned that revenue and you're also still on the hook to deliver a bunch of services. So, it's more a thing that like it doesn't mean you can't reinvest it. But you just have to be aware that there's some nuances there. Also, if you ever want to sell your company, they're going to look at it on an accrual basis if it's a substantial sale. And you know, if you don't have your books in accrual, they're going to recreate them probably in accrual in their due diligence process. And it's a lot better to just have them, you know, in accrual to begin with because at the end of the day, cash is really cash accounting is not really that accurate. Um, accrual is accurate, and you know, as a especially you know if you're getting upfront payments you need that accurate you know view of the business
0: Yeah. Otherwise, one, as you're in it, your profitability is going to be out of whack month over month. And better to know what those investors or people potentially buying the agency are going to be looking at. You need to know what the picture is they're going to see because they're going to see it that way, regardless of the way you've been looking at it and doing your accounting. So that's definitely a good call out, Sam. Well, as we round it out here, we want to hit our two segments that we always do here on Agency Life. Sam, we're going to hit you with our fast five, our rapid fire round of questions. And give you a chance to give someone a shout out before we wrap up today. So let's hit you with the fast five. This one was really interesting and inbound a few weeks back to get to ask so many agency owners this. Would love to add your response to the data we've been collecting here. If someone gave you $10,000 a month to help you better run your agency right now, how would you use that, Sam?
1: Well, that's a good one. So, you know, I think I would fly out my sales team and to, more in-person meetings I think closing deals via via zoom is great but especially you know if it's a competitive deal or it just standing out I think you know whenever you know doing you know kind of zigging when people are you know zagging and whatever zigging when people are zagging like just getting more in-person time on big deals I think that you can really stand out so yeah just mm. an air air travel budget for uh, for the sales team for those big deals I think would would be great
0: That is a new one. We haven't heard yet several dozen episodes into the show, but I really like it. All right. Number two, Sam, what are some of your all-time favorite books that have helped you as an agency owner? So they could be personal development. They could be business. They could be marketing. The field is wide open for you here.
1: Man, there's a lot of good books I like. I think um, a book that early on had a lot of influence on me in my career was a book called Awesomely Simple. I think it's still like one of the best like general leadership. CEO books, very simple, but, you know, again, you know, everything is kind of simple, but not easy. And it's, it's great. I think also as the company has grown and now I'm actually having to play more of a CEO role and I have like a leadership team and there's people accountable for every function. The two best CEO books I've found are one is called the CEO tightrope. And the other one is called good CEOs are lazy. So those books, I would say, are really underrated when it comes to, you know, CEO books out there uh, for folks who are looking for that.
0: That second one really catches my eye. I was hearing a guest and Pete Caputa at Databox on their Metrics and Chill podcast. And he just kind of threw out there that like, oh, Pete, I've always admired that you've been strategically lazy. And it kind of caught him off guard. And I I think it's probably in line with what is being talked about in that book. But definitely one I think that is new to the list that we should add and has my attention. All right. I'm not always that good at going through our fast five actually fast. So we're going to jump on to number three. Sam, what's one mistake you've made in running your agency that you're never going to forget?
1: First thing that comes to mind would just be probably not having, you know, the right level of financial acumen that I wish I would have had earlier. You know, obviously we talked about the cash versus accrual thing there. I think that's one good example. I think just kind of thinking that you can sort of delegate, you know, finance and even when you have a good team in place, like you still need to really, you know, understand The finance of running an agency, it's not something that you can ever fully delegate. You need to also have an understanding of that. I would say like, that's where I think if there's anything I change, I would have put more effort into doing to learning it earlier, even though it's not my original sweet spot or like not my natural talent. Yeah, that, I would have to say that. I, I think that's probably a pretty common answer as well.
0: Yeah, yeah, that one's come up a bit. And I think it, it makes sense with the typical persona traits that you see among agency owners. Uh, you tend to get into the work from more the creative side than the business side at, at times, right? And not necessarily that bent towards loving spreadsheets and, and loving the financial literacy, but it definitely bodes you well. All right, number four and five are two sides to the same coin. Sam, number four, what's the hardest part about agency? agency life in your opinion
1: the hardest part about it is probably getting through the really hard years to getting to the point where it's actually a lot more fun and you have a great team and you're kind of at scale a little bit more cuz subscale like agency life when you're not able to ever take a vacation and you know all those things it is really hard you know obviously so i think just making it through the sort of that up that hill until you're big enough where you can bring on some great people to help you. And frankly, I think it gets a lot more fun and you get to work with more, more, you know, awesome folks and have more of a team. That to me is probably like, yeah, that that would probably be the answer.
0: Yeah. You may have led right into number five as we round it out here. Sam, what do you think is the best part about agency life?
1: I think the best part about it, it's a business that, you can really bootstrap really well and control your own destiny if you, you know, do everything right and get to call a lot of the shots and have a ton of you know, freedom and autonomy.
0: Yeah, the freedom and autonomy is definitely something I think a lot of agency owners get into it for. So uh, hopefully we've given you some tips to achieve some of that today, whether you're going all in on productizing or you're thinking about it a little bit differently here based on the tips that Sam has shared in their own journey at Testimonial Hero. All right, Sam, as we round out every conversation, I want to give you the chance to give a shout out to someone who's impacted your career and your agency life. Who do you want to shout out today?
1: Yeah, well, first of all, I think um, I shout out to my leadership team, my executive team, my GM Kevin. I'm also I'll give a shout out to an early coach of mine who was very influential, Anthony Tambiolo. He I started working with him when the business was at around 150 thousand dollars in revenue a year, and you know ended you know working with him when we were well over three million. And yeah, he had run an agency. He had been on that exact same journey. So I would say shout out to him. We had some good times and it's great to have him in, in the corner. And I'm a real big fan of having, you know, coaches that have done exactly what you want to do and are, you know, a couple of years ahead of you, but not like, you know, decades ahead of you. So yeah, I, I would say yeah, shout out to Anthony.
0: Yeah, there's a sweet spot there. And I think that was another one of your points in that tweet thread that we talked about through part of this conversation. So we'll definitely link to that, the webinar with Drew McClellan and your LinkedIn so that people can connect with you, Sam. For anybody else who wants to connect with you as a fellow agency owner a peer, maybe they see you as kind of that person who's a few years ahead of them. What would be the best way for them to stay engaged, reach out and stay connected with you?
1: Yeah, I would say hit me up on Twitter. On LinkedIn, I do my customer-facing marketing. Twitter, I'm more just kind of sharing musings and talking shop about agency life. And okay, so if you're looking for video testimonials, follow me on LinkedIn. If you want to talk shop about agencies and hit me up and get my advice or what have you, follow me on Twitter, shoot me a message.
0: Uh, I love it. Good delineation and how you're using the two channels, man. I think that's that's super smart. Uh, This has been a fantastic conversation, Sam. Glad uh, Dustin on your team connected us. Uh, Shout out to him as well. Thank you so much for being our guest on Agency Life. I really appreciate it, Sam.
1: My pleasure, Logan. This was a blast.
0: You've been listening to Agency Life. And if you made it this far, you're probably enjoying the show. If so, you can help other agency leaders find the show in about 14 more seconds. If you're listening in Apple Podcasts, you can simply scroll down till you see ratings and reviews and tap the number of stars you think the show deserves. We'll really appreciate it, and so will the other agency leaders who find the show based on your rating. And if you're looking for even more content to support your agency life journey, check out teamwork.com/agencylife. There you can search through past episodes, get access to the Agency Life newsletter, and find additional video content to support and inspire you as you continue on this crazy roller coaster ride that is agency life.